0: So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 100, so if you have a Bible, please turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a seat somewhere near you, and if you use those Bibles, Psalm 100 is on page 469. So there are just five verses in this short psalm, but that doesn't mean that you should expect a short sermon. I think it's best if we start with our expectations in the right place, and I hope that doesn't disappoint anybody, but short psalm doesn't mean short sermon. There's plenty to talk about here, so let's jump right in. Please follow along as I read. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So how many of you have kids in your home? Kids in home right now. How many of you have ever had kids in your home? How many of you have ever been a young kid? How many of you are a kid? I think, I think that includes just about everyone. If I missed you, I apologize. If you've had Any association with kids on Christmas morning, then you've seen a little bit of a demonstration. You've seen a picture of what the writer of Psalm 100 expects, of how he expects people to respond to who God is. But what many of us experienced yesterday wasn't a perfect picture because the picture that many of us saw yesterday probably wasn't in response to God. It was in response to presence and a lot of sugar. So it wasn't a, a it wasn't a perfect picture, but it's still a helpful picture because if you look again at verse 1, make a joyful noise. And then you see gladness and singing that are mentioned in verse 2. And then if you skip down to verse 4, there's thanksgiving and praise. And if you've ever been around even a mildly expressive child on Christmas morning, then you've witnessed all of these words in action. Joy and gladness and gratitude and praise, these words characterize Christmas morning for many of us, and these words should characterize the life of a Christian, a life lived in response to God and his goodness. So here's the main idea that I hope to get across this morning. Joyful, thankful worship is the proper response of the Lord's people to who he is. Joy-filled thanks. And thanks-filled worship is the proper response of the Lord's people to who the Lord is. But since we'll only respond rightly to who God is if we see him rightly, let's begin by praying and asking that the Lord would give us sight so that we can see him as we should, and worship him as we should. So join me as I pray. Father in heaven, there are so many things, even right now, that threaten to get in the way of our seeing you for who you are. And as important as important as, as some of those things may feel to us, we need to keep you as our main focus. Both this morning and always, we need our lives to focus on you. So please give us clarity if our vision of you is blurry and redirect our gaze if we're distracted and if there are any blind eyes this morning who haven't seen you for who you are, I ask that you would give sight and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we don't know who the writer of Psalm 100 was, but whoever he was, we know that he was a worshiping, worship leader. He's worshiping God here and at the same time calling others to worship God. He's simultaneously praising God himself while encouraging others to praise because a worship leader isn't just someone who leads the singing portion of a church service. A worship leader is anyone who reminds people of who God is and what he has done and encourages a proper response to who God is and what he has done. And that's the pattern that we see here in Psalm 100. Verses 1 and 2 tell us to praise and serve and sing to the Lord. And then verse 3 gives us reasons to praise and serve and sing by telling us that the Lord is God who made us and cares for us. And then the pattern is repeated in verse four. Thank the Lord, praise the Lord. Why? Because verse five, the Lord is good and loving and faithful. That's the structure. Do verses one and two because verse three is true about God. And then again, do verse four, because verse five is true about God. And this is essentially how the Christian life works. Out of a heartfelt understanding of who God is and what he has done, we respond with adoration and joyful obedience and gratitude and praise. Our understanding of God shapes Every aspect of our lives, every word that we say, every thought that we think, every deed that we do, every dollar we spend and effort we make, is influenced by how we view god, and so it 's vitally important that we understand God rightly, or else we won 't live our lives rightly. And this psalm, this psalm, teaches us who God is it helps us. View God as we should. And I've broken it up into two points. First, worship the Lord with gladness because he is God. And second, worship the Lord with gratitude because he is good. And so, first, worship the Lord with gladness because he is God. And notice as I read verse 1, he doesn't take us from zero to 60. It just starts at 60 miles per hour. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And so where does all of that worshipful momentum come from? Well, if we take a step back and look at where we are in the book of Psalms as a whole, most of the commentaries that I read pointed out that Psalm 100 is the last of a group of Psalms. Psalms 93 through 100 And this group of psalms is is often called the divine kingship psalms because they shine a spotlight on God as the ruler of the universe, as the king over all of creation. For example, Psalm 93 says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. And then in Psalm 95, we're told that the Lord is a great God and great king above all gods, And then Psalm 96 tells us to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 98, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord And then Psalm 99, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then finally we come here to Psalm 100, bringing these divine kingship hymns to a close with this energetic, exuberant call to come before the Lord with shouts and service and singing, which is what we see in verses one and two. Shouts, service, singing. All of these are responses to who God is. All of these are expressions of worship, and all of these are to be be done with joy. And so we know a little bit about what a joyful shout sounds like kids on Christmas morning, or adults when their favorite team wins a big game, or their favorite politician wins the big election. And notice in verse 1, it doesn't say joyful words. And depending upon your translation, it says joyful noise or joyful shout. And we might think of this as a joyful cheer. These noises are the external expression of an internal joy, An internal joy in the Lord that just isn't complete until it's expressed. And have you noticed how humans make noises to express strong emotions? Like if you see something really funny, you laugh. If you experience something devastatingly sad, you weep. And if you see the Lord on his throne reigning over the affairs of earth, you shout for joy That he is a just and righteous king. So that's joyful, or that's worshipful shouts. Next is worshipful service. In verse two, serve the Lord with gladness. So, what do we call a person who serves? A servant serves. And what kind of servant serves with gladness? A servant who has a really good master. A servant who serves a trustworthy king. And the Lord is that good and trustworthy king. But this glad service isn't our default attitude toward God. By nature, we want to serve ourselves We want to rule our own lives. We want to be our own king. And the Bible will go so far as to say that we're at enmity with God. We're enemies. We're against him and he's against us. We're opposed to him and he's opposed to us. And it can't end well for those who have rebelled against God and rejected his rule because he is the creator and we are the created, and God is far more powerful than we are. But I want you to notice that there's a glimmer of hope for us even here in Psalm 100 because whoever wrote this psalm is rejoicing in God and is happy to serve him, which can only mean that somehow it's possible for the broken relationship between us and God to be restored. Somehow it's possible for that broken relationship to be reconciled and we'll get there but for now moving on not only does the psalmist encourage worshipful shouts and worshipful service he also calls us in the second part of verse two to worshipful singing come into his presence with singing the people of God are commanded at least 50 times throughout the Bible in both old and new testaments to sing for example, Psalm 95 says, "O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord, which is what we've done this morning. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise." Or Colossians 3:16. "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom," Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is yet another way that we express the joy within us. Another way that we express our adoration for the Lord. And if we follow the example of the book of Psalms, which is in itself a songbook, our songs should be filled with theology, Filled with truth about who God is. Filled with knowledge of God. Which brings us to the first word of of verse 3. The first word which might be the most important word in this whole psalm. Know. And what is it that the psalmist is telling us to know? Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Everything starts with a right understanding of the Lord. We can't understand ourselves rightly. We can't properly make sense of life without a true knowledge of God. And this is why our church makes such a big deal about the Bible, because the Bible is the primary place where God teaches us about himself. And so we fill our Sunday mornings with the word of God. We read the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, and we even see the word when we partake of the Lord's supper together. But it's also important that the centrality of the word isn't limited to Sunday mornings, but that it would also take a prominent place in our homes and in the rest of our lives as well because we need to to be reminded more than one day a week of who God is. If God's word isn't prominent in our lives, then something else will be and that something else will be the thing that shapes our view of reality. The word of God must take a central place in our lives and not because we worship a book, but because we worship the one who the book points us to. So who is it that the Bible points us to? Here it says, his name is the Lord. Know that the Lord, he is God. And whenever you see the word Lord in your Bible, in all capital letters, it's referring to the personal name of God we can't be 100% sure how it it was pronounced in Hebrew, but it was probably something like Yahweh. Yahweh is God. And so the first thing that we need to know is that Yahweh is God. He's not a God. He is the one true God. Baal may have been regarded as a God and Molech may have been worshipped as a God. Brahma or Vishnu may be thought to be God's even today, and we may be tempted to roll our eyes at gods like those. But before we look down our noses at those who bow to statues, like, we have plenty of gods of our own. Like, we'll make a god out of just about anything. Wealth becomes a god for many people. Or we make gods out of a career, or our family, or our reputation, or athletic ability or academic achievement. We make gods out of actors and athletes and politicians, even our houses and vehicles or food or travel or games. All of these things can become gods and the list is endless. Anything or any person or any achievement or any experience that we think is more important or more significant than the Lord, that thing becomes a God to us. Anything that we love more than we love the Lord, anything that we value more than we treasure the Lord, that thing becomes a God to us, and we worship it. We joyfully give our lives for it. And this is called idolatry. And we're all guilty of the sin of idolatry. This is at the heart of our rejection of God. It's at the heart of our sinfulness. Listen to Romans 1. This is what it says we, we've all done. It says that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We've worshiped and served created things Rather than the creator. And this is a big deal. Like, our idolatry is not a small sin. And so, in an attempt to illustrate the severity of this sin, first we all need to agree that children are more important than hobbies. Like, hopefully, no one is thinking, well, it it depends upon the hobby. No, children are more important than hobbies. So, picture in your mind a dad and his kids. Those kids should be more important to that dad than his favorite hobby, whatever that hobby is. But now imagine a dad who loves, let's say fishing. He loves fishing so much that he spends all of his free time fishing. He gets up early so he can go fishing before work. And after work, He goes fishing, and in the rare moments when he's actually home, he spends all of his time either cleaning his fishing gear or watching videos on YouTube about fishing. He spends all of his time focused on fishing, and the whole time he completely neglects his children. He doesn't spend any time with them. He doesn't teach them anything. He doesn't care for them in any way. And most people would look at a situation like that and see a dad whose life and love is out of order. And I would go so far as to say that a dad who neglects his kids to that extreme is a wicked dad. And we should be angry about the way that he's treating his kids. And if we didn't feel some anger, I would think that there's something wrong with us. But this analogy falls short even because it's a far more serious offense to, in our hearts, remove God from his throne and replace him with something or someone else. And we've all done it. And we may not have physically bowed down to an idol, but worship is more than a physical act. Worship is the posture of the heart, And in our hearts, all of us have bowed down to created things rather than the creator. And he is right to be angry with us. But somehow, by God's grace, there's no sign of his anger to be found in this psalm. Like, look at the second part of verse 3. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We see God's care for his people here. He made us. We belong to him. And the imagery of God's people as sheep and God as shepherd is a picture that's used multiple times throughout the Bible. It's a major biblical theme. And this shepherd theme, this shepherd imagery culminates in Jesus who says of himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Psalm 100, the Lord is presented as the great shepherd king. And in the person of Jesus, we see the great shepherd king becoming flesh and dwelling with us. And that's what we recognize, that's what we celebrated yesterday. And while it's been a common practice for kings throughout history, to send out their armies, to send their people out to fight and die for the king to enlarge and strengthen his kingdom, in Jesus, we see the king of kings going out himself to fight and to die for his people in order to bring them into his kingdom, the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. The Good Shepherd taking responsibility for all of our crimes against God, our rebellion, our idolatry. He took our sin upon himself on the cross and endured the punishment that we deserve. He suffered the death that we deserve to die. And the anger of the Lord that was rightly directed at us was redirected to the Good Shepherd when he bore our sins in his body, on the tree. And this is how we come into the presence of the Lord. This is how we can serve him and sing with joy. And the only way that we can, and this is the only way that we can do point number one, to worship the Lord with gladness because he is God. The only way that that's even a possibility is because our debt of sin has been completely paid for in the death of Jesus. He reconciled our relationship with God. He restored our relationship with God. And and so it should really come as no surprise that point number two is also only possible because of Jesus. Worship the Lord with gratitude because he is good. The last two verses of the psalm follow the same pattern, as I mentioned, of the first three verses by telling us again how we should respond to who God is. Do verse four because of who God is said to be in verse five. Do verse four because of verse five. So let's look at verse four and see what it tells us to do. First, we have another invitation to come into the Lord's presence. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So, the gates and courts that are mentioned here were elements of the temple where God's people would go to worship. But you may be thinking this was BC, this was before Christ. How did people come into the presence of God before their sin was fully and finally dealt with? by Jesus on the cross? And that's a great question. God, in his grace, even before Christ, had provided a way for his people to have access to him, but it was a limited access. God had made his presence to dwell in the temple in a special way, but the people could only worship from a distance. And there was also a massive curtain that separated that special presence of God from the people. And the curtain was a constant reminder that because of their sin, they couldn't have full access to God. Even with an elaborate sacrificial system and other laws about cleanliness, which were gracious gifts from a holy God to an unholy people, even with all those procedures in place, they could only enter the outer courts of the temple. But they couldn't enter the innermost court. Their access to God was a limited access. But even though their access was limited, coming into the Lord's presence, even in this limited way, was to be an occasion filled with thanksgiving and praise. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So we've considered worshipful Shouts and worshipful service and worshipful singing. Now we have worshipful thanksgiving and worshipful praise. And I chose to add the word worshipful to each of these words because, as I mentioned earlier, worship is something that takes place internally before it's expressed externally. When we see God for who he is, and love him as we should, and treasure him more than anyone or anything else, it's out of that worshipful posture of the heart that these external expressions of worship flow. But there's a danger, because it's really easy to manufacture expressions of worship without the proper heart posture behind it. Like, it's easy To fake worship. It would be easy for me to make what sounds like a joyful noise without having any joy for the Lord in my heart. It's easy for me to make it look like I'm gladly serving the Lord, but to actually be doing it out of a heart of begrudging submission or just a desire to impress others. I can sing without any affection for the Lord. I can express thanksgiving without any real feeling of gratitude. I can do all of the external expressions without having any love for the Lord. It's counterfeit worship. And counterfeit worship, just like a counterfeit dollar, is not only worthless, but it's an offense. It's a crime to attempt to pass it off as the real thing. But on the other hand, I want to be careful not to set an unrealistic expectation that the Christian life is always and only overflowing and bursting with exuberant joy. Yes, joy and thanksgiving and praise, these things should, they must characterize God's people, but sometimes our joy and our thanksgiving and our praise is mixed with sadness and tears because as long as sin remains in us and in the world around us, we will experience grief. Grief caused by a health crisis or grief caused by loss of employment, grief caused by the death of a loved one, grief caused by the betrayal of a friend or grief caused by some form of persecution And the list goes on and on. There's no shortage of circumstances that cause grief and distress in a world that is turned from God. But it's still possible for the Christian to experience joy even in the midst of suffering and grief because our hope isn't ultimately in this world. Our hope is in God. So where do we turn when life gets turned upside down? And we don't have to look far far, even in the book of Psalms to find the answer. Just jump forward a couple chapters to Psalm 102 and look at the description at the beginning of the psalm. It says that it's a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And we don't know, but it's entirely possible that this afflicted, faint-hearted person is the same person who wrote Psalm 100. It could be. Whoever he is, look what he does. He takes all of his cares, he takes all of his troubles, and he casts them on the Lord. So listen to what he says. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come before you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, And my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. And he goes on like that for another six verses until he gets to verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. So when doubt and despair threatens to overtake him, the psalmist turns to the Lord. He remembers what he knows to be true about God and in particular, that God is in control. He's enthroned forever. That he has a purpose for the trials and difficulties that we face and that one day he will put an end to the sickness and sadness and death that sin brings and that he will, in the end, bring us safely home to himself. And as we saw in Psalm 100, the conviction that God is king and that he reigns, that conviction is the foundation of our worship. And also here in Psalm 102, the conviction that God reigns is the ultimate antidote to doubt and despair. A right understanding of God, knowing who he is and what he has done, shapes every aspect of our lives. It informs our worship. So let's go back to Psalm 100 and look at the reason why we should, more reasons why we should come into God's presence with worshipful thanksgiving and worshipful praise. So look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So, hopefully, it's clear based on what's already been said this morning that the Lord is, in fact, good and faithful and loving. That he allows us to come into his presence at all proves the truth of these words because we have not been good or loving or faithful to God. And we in no way deserve any blessing from him. It's also important to remember that even if God were to condemn us to an eternal prison, he wouldn't cease to be good or loving or faithful because we would only be receiving what we deserve. Take a human judge, for example. If a convicted murderer is brought before a good judge, does that judge cease to be good if he or she condemns the murderer to either life in prison or death. No, it's the corrupt judge that lets felons off the hook. It's the unjust judge who takes bribes and lets murderers go free. And in a similar way, God would be unjust if he were to simply sweep our sin under the rug. God would not be good if he turned a blind eye to our sin. All sin must be punished, and the penalty for sin is death. And this is why we love the gospel, because it's in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that the penalty of our sin was paid for in full by Jesus on the cross in our place And now we come into God's presence not based on any merit or righteousness that we have. We don't have any merit or righteousness before God. We come based on the merit and righteousness of Jesus, the great shepherd king. And you remember that curtain in the temple. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that curtain, that visible reminder of the separation between God and sinners, the curtain was torn in two, showing us that access to God is now possible for those who put their trust in the good shepherd. And we see all of the attributes of God most clearly in the gospel. We see his steadfast love put on full display. As Romans 5.8 says, That God shows His love for us. God demonstrates His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we see His faithfulness because, as early as Genesis chapter 3 and throughout the Old Testament, God was making promises promises of blessing, promises of salvation. And He was faithful to keep those promises, which all find their fulfillment. In Christ, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And so I'll close with a reminder that the good news is good news for the whole world. Every person in every place, in every generation, needs to hear about this God and what he has done. So look back at verse 1 to a phrase that I skipped. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Who? All the earth. The psalmist is calling everyone. He's calling us here today to bow the knee in joyful, thankful worship. To bow our hearts to the great shepherd king. To know that the Lord, he is God and he is good and he is loving and he is faithful to all generations. And our worship, the way that we express our worship, communicates to a watching world what we believe about God. And so like kids on Christmas morning, may we worship and serve the Lord with joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our affection and our devotion. You're worthy of our lives. And again, we ask you that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. And we pray that the truth about who you are and what you've done would shape every aspect of our lives. And we pray these things for your glory and in Jesus' good name. Amen.